you for joining us, um, myself and the, Gerard, uh, the Justice for Gerard movement for turning a moment into a movement. I am Jay Love. And the, um, the movement was birthed the day my son Gerard was wrongfully incarcerated for a crime he didn't do. And from that, turn, uh, birthed this movement, turning a moment into a movement. So thank you for joining us as you, um, some of you guys, it may be your first time. And um, I wanna tell you that this is a safe space where we come in and we talk about um, uh, wrongful convictions. Uh, we advocate for those who have been wrongfully incarcerated and even for those who have um, been over sentenced. So I, I wanna thank you guys for joining us. Our mission is to bring awareness to wrongful convictions of Gerard, as well as others, to organize and to educate our communities about the need to disrupt systems, policies, and patterns that leads to wrongful convictions. So thank you. So I'm gonna um, uh, uh, bring in our guests, our panel first, and then our guests. So today, Hi, Attorney Hugo Matt. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing, Alina? <laughs> How are you? Doing good. Trying to get a better connection. Can you hear me? I hear you well. Can you okay. hear me? If, if things go south on me, I'm yes. If things go south on me, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to my smartphone, but I'm gonna give this laptop one more chance. Okay. All right. So um, introduce yourself and tell everybody what it is that you do. Attorney Hugo, Matt, you can't hear me. Okay. I'm sorry, now no, no, I can, I apologize. Oh no, introduce yourself and tell everyone what it is that you do. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Bear, bear with me on, on, on okay. my technology, Queen. I, I'm learning from you, my Queen. I'm learning. I'm learning. So, <laughs> right. oh, and by the way, you have that is a fantastic intro you have too. I feel like I'm going into a Star Wars movie or something. The way you got that, you know, I, I got I got to buckle up. You know, I I'm impressed with that with that countdown. Well, you know, once again, I apologize for any technical difficulties um, that that we may have, but prayerfully, you can all hear me. Uh, my name is Hugo Mack, and to explain a little bit about myself, I'm a veteran criminal defense attorney, um, want to be Washington County prosecutor, and so so we we will <laughs> we, we we will see what the future holds. But and I mean I say that jokingly, but really serious because my dedication to the people that have been wrongfully convicted and overly convicted is mainstay in my career. You know, um, 
I heard a man by the name of Sam Riddle say one time, I can do time, I just can't do injustice. Right. And you know, right. um, um, I plagiarized him, but I guess I plagiarized him because I, I am giving him credit for that. So what, I, what I'm really all about is fighting for the people who cannot fight for themselves. And you know, Jay Love, I want to say something. You've always said, we're not here trying to say that each and every person that is convicted has been railroaded. We're not saying that at all. We're not saying that. What we are saying though, you cannot use that as an excuse for turning your eye, a blind eye to people that have been wrongfully convicted or overly convicted and say, well, you know, the system works pretty much most of the time so we can accept it. You wouldn't do it if it was your son or daughter or your mother or father. You wouldn't do it or your husband or wife. So I'm grateful to be here. And I'm grateful to have an opportunity to speak up for the wrongfully convicted. I left many of them within the Michigan Department of Corrections. I think about them. Some of them have died, you know, and you give somebody a basketball score type sentence. I don't care what they say about the law. That can be and oftentimes equates to a death sentence. All right. A death sentence. Penitentiary is a very violent and dangerous place, you know, um, not only talk about the inmates that are there, but the guards and administration too, because believe me, they got their ways of getting even with people. You best believe they do. Yeah, right. best believe they do. So I'm I'm proud to be here and uh thank you so much for letting me continue on. Oh, I'm so um proud that you're here as well. Sam was talking about you this morning too and giving you accolades. <laughs> oh, I didn't hear that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. A good man. He's my bud. A good man. Yeah, good he man. is a great person. So yeah. I see uh, Baraka uh, Edward is in the um, feed. I don't know why. <laughs> We're waiting for him to join us. So hopefully he um, clicks in soon. We're going to break in. Allie, hi. Hey, how's it going? All right. Oh, everything is going well. How are you today? I'm doing good. It's a beautiful day. No, feeling uplifted. Awesome. That's right. That's right. That's right. Great. Good to see you, Allie. Good to see you. <laughs> so tell us, um, everyone, for those who this may be their first time joining us, who you are and what it is that you do. Yes. Um, my name is Alexandria. I'm a behavior therapist and also activist uh, with Michigan Liberation and Accountability for Dearborn. I fight this fight because what is happening to black people needs to stop. It's cruel and the hate is just, it's too much to continue to bear um, personally. And for many people I know, um, it's hurting our mental health and our well being. I'm also a firm believer uh, that a woman's body is not a group discussion. And I say that because too often it is. And I'm happy to be here. I'm glad you're here as well. So let's bring on our next panelist. I see fine he made it. Hi. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing in there? <laughs> I, I just I just come in from a run, jumped in and got a shower and tried to run here and get on, on uh so you guys excuse me. Oh you it's okay. And, and hello to everybody. How you guys doing this evening? We're you're fine. Good. Good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, introduce yourself and tell everybody what it is that you do. Yes, I'm glad to be here. Uh, my name is Edward Sanders. I go by the name of Barca. Um, I am um, a returning citizen, uh, which is a term that's used for those of us 
who have um, recently come home um, from um, incarceration. Um, I served um, 43 years in Michigan um, prison. I went to prison as a 17-year-old kid. I came home just before my um, 60th birthday. So I went in um, at the age of 17 and came out um, in 1975 and came out in 2017. Um, since I've been home, um, I have been um, preoccupied with um, um, working with um, grassroots organizations, um, everything from um, being there in Detroit, um, 3rd Martin Luther King Boulevard on, on Sunday um, afternoons with a, a crew there that normally um, feeds the um, homeless there. Um, I started off there, and um, from there I then took and found my way um, into the um, uh, um, bosoms of um, organizations from um, the the uh, um, Michigan Liberation Organization, um, SEDO, um Reentry Program, probably was the first um, program I found myself um, or organization I found myself uh, participating in, the ACLU um, Youth for Justice, um, um, and, and, and many other um, programs. Um, um, I found myself in churches with uh, um, um, victims of crime. In fact, I went to one church um, uh, unsuspecting and there were two women there that were the victims. Um, their family was the victims of um, the same individual. And um, to my surprise, I had actually served time with the person that had victimized both of these families. And within the, the two women's family, they had lost, um, they had lost um, three family members, three family members out of one, um, the result of one family. And um, they, 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 there was a lot of um, trauma in that room. I didn't anticipate that as a returning citizen. And so being in this space is not just talking about ourselves as returning citizens, it's also taking and looking in the face the harm that we have uh, um, caused in our community. And uh, many of uh, the returning citizens that I'm personally in contact with, um, that I, I involve myself with, they're involved in taking and trying to right the wrongs that they did. We don't take the attitude that we owe somebody something where people are taking and calling on you because um, you got this um, uh, destination on you and they say you can pay your debt. Well, hell with that. I don't owe nobody a debt. Okay, um, if there's anyone that I owe the debt, it will be immediately to the immediate family, to the victim's family, um, if anyone. Um, there's no one else that I owe a damn debt to or anybody else that's coming out of prison. You're going to carry that stigma of having been in prison for the rest of your entire life. Every time you fill out an application for a job to take care of yourself, to take care of your family, you're going to have to take an answer to that mistake that you made. Every time you take and put in an application for, for, for vocational training, or education, or even for a place to live, or public assistance, you're going to have to take an answer to that. So I don't owe nobody a debt. We have bullies that are in our government, like uh, 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 um, uh, uh, Mac just said um, about um, we're not just here saying that everyone is innocent that is in prison when 90, about 97% of the people in the United States plead guilty. Most of them are, 
uh, uh, serving time in a set of the crimes that they committed. And that's an injustice, you know, is where the prosecutors go out the way and purposely overcharge a person with the idea of plea bargaining at the table. So after you kind of um, get into this show, I would really like to take and speak about that and, and put that out on the floor as to how that represents the largest body of people who are actually innocent behind bars in this country. And thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. So next, Reverend Tia Tate, uh, Little John. Hi. Hey there. How are you? Um. I'm just so blessed, Janice. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on this dynamic panel. I, uh, I'm just gotten fired up again. Uh, I think every day, every day we, we may read something, we come across something there's, you know, that recertifies why we are here. It calls us to purpose. And so I have been a part of social justice, oh my goodness, for years, I was uh, the executive director of Empowered Living until 2015. Uh, at, at Empowered Living, I did the um, prison reentry program and went across actually to find people to get into the program and to help them. And they weren't paying this I didn't get, we didn't get paid per se for, you know, for the people that we helped. Um, there were so many tragedies uh, that I had come across when it came to, to that program. And one in particular, there was a woman who, uh, when I got the ID on her, they had pictured this woman just horrible. Um, that, that all these things that they said about her. And in addition to that, that she was medically unstable. And I was thinking, how, well, how can I put her in a program? Because our program helped to get jobs and, and, and training and everything. And, and it just seemed like that was going to be a futile effort. Anyway, when I went to see her, she was vibrant and healthy. And yes, she had gone through some things but she was on the other side of it. So she really did fit the criteria for our program. But sometimes you don't know anything until you see it on hand. Mm -hmm. And this is the call for me when it comes to social justice, to get down close up and see what's going on. Um, I was a part of the first cohort for social justice coming out of Mary Grove in 2006. And I did the peace conference for, um, for uh, actually under Empowered Living, we did a peace conference in Detroit. Um, and that was to combat violence. Uh, so right now I am on the forefront with, uh, of course, with turning a moment into a movement, which I am 100% behind. And I am learning to become a part of so many other organizations too. Ali got my back. I, I've I've got your back, uh, and I've got and and the thing about it is you have to join where you can and do what you can. Um, I'm also um, in a in my doctorate program, so I do a lot of writing, do a lot of research. So if you guys need help with research or writing, I am available for that. And uh, and I'm a minister at Transforming Love Community, and where we transform lives. And I just believe that. This call has helped our own 
organization, our own spiritual community to wake up to the fact that faith definitely is an action word and you got to go and do the action in the community. So I just praise God for this this movement. Um, I'm also helping with Flint. and their reparations, you know, with Bishop Jefferson on the forefront there. And that, that I, sometimes I have to take a break from Flint because, oh, well, like always, I only get upset when people don't do what I want them to do. So, <laughs> and I know now I don't have control over other people. So, <laughs> so I appreciate the panel, I appreciate the movement, and I appreciate our victories in advance. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. So today, before we get started, I'm going to bring in our special guest. Hold on. Hi. there. Hi, Beth. Introduce yourself. And I was trying so hard to bring your slide in, and it just wasn't working for me, so... No worries. I'll, I'll do the plug anyhow. Okay. <laughs> Introduce yourself. Tell everyone what it is that you do and about your organization and event, and then we'll go into it. All right. Well, hi, everyone. Good to, good to see all of you. Um, my name is Beth. Um, I am a researcher. I'm an educator, and I'm an activist. Um, my work really or what I'm called for, to this work for is really Black liberation and carceral abolition. Um, so the organization that I'm with um, and where I know Alexandria from is Accountability for Dearborn. And really our, our work in Dearborn is focusing on anti-Black racism that has seeped into every corner of our city. That is the basis of where Dearborn was founded and still very much shows up in, in aspects of our lives, of our culture and of the, the policies that govern the city. Um, and one of the ways that that shows up in Dearborn is this massive investment in policing. I say investment, but that's kind of a generous word. This massive spending on policing um, as Dearborn seeks to establish a border between majority uh, white classified Dearborn and majority black Detroit. Um, So our goals with accountability for Dearborn involve transparency, accountability, and divestment from the Dearborn police, and then turning around and making investment in our communities to make our communities stronger and more resilient and and Mm anti-racist. So one of the one of the current initiatives that we have going on is we managed to gain quite a bit of data from the police department. Um, months of, of harassing our city officials finally resulted in them releasing data about um, calls to service, citations, and arrests. And what we saw in these data um, probably won't surprise anyone on this panel, but it was extreme anti-Black racial bias. And it was that the police are are not focusing on keeping us safe. The police are keep focusing on keeping us separate. Mm. So we we've been trying to bring awareness um, to to that fact. So as we move into budget season for our city, as we move into municipal elections this year, um, people in our community can make wise decisions 
that that hopefully interrupt this cycle of racism, of anti-Blackness in Dearborn. So our fourth of four data town halls is actually tomorrow and Jay Love will be one of our presenters and we're focusing on arrests. Um, so I'm gonna be covering arrests data, um, which is, I find it fascinating, but I'm, I'm a researcher. <laughs> uh, Reverend Little John may also find it quite interesting. Um, so we'll be talking about the data, but then we really rely on our community partners to help us contextualize that information. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one thing to look at numbers and see 58.6% of people arrested in Dearborn were black. And it's another thing to have community members come in and say what that means. Give it some context, give it the significance of, of what that means. So we're, we're so grateful and just honored to have Jay joining our panel. Um, and also just to bring a level of awareness that we know isn't there and we know is necessary. So. Right. And I'm going to be speaking on a, um, an incident that happened to me that kind of fits in what we're talking about. It was because of the police there in Dearborn using their biases. Just, you know, assumed that I did something that I didn't even do. And because of that incident that happened to me back then, made me so much um, passionate and more assertive to help Gerard and to bring this awareness and create this movement. So things happen for a reason. And um, I'm glad that this, um, we are here together. So um, uh, Attorney Hugo Matt, as we do every week, Kind of explain to us what about um, confirmative confirmation biases, what it is, and how do they contribute to wrongful um, convictions? Well, you know, I mean, first of all, I'm I'm honored that you asked me that question. But everybody on this panel has got personal and life experiences, knowing exactly what's happened. And I I'd be surprised if everybody in this panel has not been a victim of this. You know, and so as always, I talk as a practitioner, as things that I see in the courtroom, you know, and I've got to say, it starts with the jury. I mean, it, it really does. Um, when you have a system that is built on really only certain people being on a jury, okay? Only certain people being on a jury. For example, you know, as a person with a criminal justice involvement, I can't sit on a jury. Did you know that? Did you know that? As an attorney, I can pick a jury, but I cannot sit on one. Now, think about think about that. I mean, think about that. Now, some people would say, what you complaining about? I don't want to sit on one either. You know, take a much time. But see, they don't understand the importance of having a truly diverse jury. And I'm saying, so that's confirmation bias, what uh, uh, my good brother, Brother Sanders is talking about, about a stigma that a person carries with them with any kind of a criminal justice involvement especially if it involves the, the, the penitentiary, because we've codified into law a confirmation bias that anybody who served time, whether they deserve to or not, is somehow substandard, because that's really what you're telling me. When you're telling me, even though you know a businessman, community man, whatever, homeowner, I am not qualified to sit on a jury, you're telling me that that is a sentence you are confirming uh, a sentence that I'd serve. You are confirming that time and time and time again, and you're going to confirm that with me for the rest of my life. 
not only are you individually doing it, it's happening as a society. And so when we talk about confirmation, about, like I said, it starts with, with that jury as a practitioner. And a lot of times when people, the only contact they have with black folks, whether admit it or not, or something on the news or, or watching a basketball game, a football game or something like that, where you can confirm, particularly in terms of black people, well, they got great athletic ability, you know, you know, they, what, well, well, they really can box, they really can run track, you know, they can really play football, but then you limit that intellect to that field of that basketball court. And furthermore, you don't transfer that intellect to a coach, to a general manager or to an owner, you see, it stops there. You know, I remember I remember seeing a movie one time, uh, and and uh, I believe it was called a Soldier Story. You know, and it was about uh, some black uh, uh, GIs uh, just just before black people were allowed to go fight in Germany. They had a, a segregated uh, a camp where the black soldiers were, but it was controlled by officers. Uh, Howard Howard Rollins was in that movie, and Denzel Washington, and you know, there was a guy in there by the name of Sarge uh, uh, Adolf Caesar, I think his name was. And he talked about how the, the, the black soldiers were, were respected athletically, but never ever given any kind of, of, of intellect. And he, he was part of the problem himself. So in terms of me, in terms of confirmation bias, every time you ask that question, J. Love, I'm gonna bring it back to that jury because it's the people in the community that allow confirmation bias to exist. If you would demand of your judges, put these people on, on a hot seat, and talk about racism and whether they want to admit it or not, these prosecutors put them on the hot seat, racism exists or not, and these sheriffs, oh, these sheriffs, you know, definitely with them on the hot seat and these chiefs of police and these city councils. So it, it, it's we ourselves that, 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 that are the problem in society because we allow that to happen because they represent us. So when I don't ask a prosecutor candidate about confirmation bias, then I'm saying whatever he or she says go. And, and I'm okay with that, unless unless it hits me. So um, it, when, when people wanna feel affirmed in something, you know, in other words, they wanna feel that the world around them is in accord with them, because that means there, there's not anything wrong with them. See what I'm saying? You know, and, and that's why for me, when I would see pictures of uh, my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as blonde haired, blue eyed in churches when I grew up with, see something is wrong with that, because that confirms in other people and myself, that Jesus had looked that way. So if you look like him, it's all right. So if you don't look like him, something's kind of wrong with you, you're on the outside. So I, I don't mean a filibuster, but but it, it is a terrible thing when your prejudice come into that jury room because it, it permeates the whole proceeding and you're not gonna get justice, I guarantee it. Absolutely. Edward? Matt is always apologizing about filibusters. You just go right here because you make me feel at home. Don't stop at all. I need to take and learn how to be more concise. And as long as you're in my company, I ain't going to feel bad. And I appreciate that everyone has a full mouth of um, a story in terms of their their commitment um, to this movement, um, their involvement, their work. Uh, I'm very appreciative for that. If we didn't have that, it would be a very short introduction and probably a board uh, uh, um, gathering, and it's not none of that. Um, since I've been home, I acquired a master's degree at the University of Michigan um, School of Social Work, which is considered the number one school of social work in the nation. But unlike 
many of the other students that graduated and that wanted to rush and get their license, um, I had to pause. I had to pause. Michigan just recently passed a law um, where that clause um, which the legislature and practically put in almost every statute that require that require a licensing or a certification, um, they got a, a, a this small clause there that they use to take and out the person that's got a misdemeanor or a felony. And so I was in no rush to put this in, even though Michigan just recently passed a law. I know that you normally need three thirds of a vote in order for that law to take immediate effect. Otherwise, it take at least 90 days unless it was the law, the insurance law, which they waited for it to go in effect until just before election time so you can remember what they done for you. So that was an exception when it came to the insurance. <laughs> but uh, it, none of that passed me. I don't know if it passed you guys, but stuff like that don't pass me. But in any case, I took my time to take and put in my request. So I'm still waiting to, to find out whether or not I got my temporary license. Um, and and um, so the first process is to fill out that application and pay a fee and then to wait. If they take and approve, then I would take and go through the process of being fingerprinted by the FBI again, which is a traumatic offense uh, 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 for me um, to take and go through. But in any case, um, that's why I'm saying that I don't forget. So I don't owe nobody a debt. I can't owe you a debt if I'm if you still in my face with this stuff. You know, I'm here because this is where my love is. This is where my love is. When my mother and father separated in in, in, in the mid '60s, we family, my mother and and the kids, we moved from the Detroit East Side in a neighborhood that was all white. There was only two black families and that was us and the people that lived upstairs from us. And we moved um, over in the vicinity of 12th Street, just in time for the riot, just in time. So if the family breakup wasn't enough trauma, that was, okay? We stayed at 2075 West Philadelphia, okay? That's only two blocks from where you know, they take in place where the riot actually occurred, which was on Soar. Okay, and we actually stayed a block from there at one time because we stayed on Blaine Street, but my mother was put out of that house because she, she had too many kids, you know, living where she was living. So we had to move from one place to another place. That's what divorce means uh, uh, um, for, for a woman. You know, um, she still had that baggage. She still had a commitment. And so, um, and, and so none of that, you know, all of that was a trauma. You know, it didn't matter that I moved in the neighborhood of, uh, of Motown and the stars and their children there. You know, I literally went to school and played on the playground with Aretha Franklin's two sons and other uh, um, family members uh, um, from, from, from Motown. Um, the, the gentleman that I walked in in the neighborhood lived it on sewer. So when the riot occurred, I lost my employment. Okay. I lost my employment. I used to take and walk a blind man, and 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 um, <laughs> was one of the places I used to be fun of taking him. Okay, but <clears throat> this work is real. In regards to those, uh, um, I may mention that ninety-seven percent of those that are in our state and federal penitentiary, ninety-seven percent of the people that are in our a, a prison system are there by way of guilty plea. 
not by a jury taking and validating the arrest and their conviction. We have been talking about um, confer, uh, affirm bias. There is a bias in here that if the police arrest you, you've done something wrong. We all have a belief that these men and women in uniform are honest enough to only take and catch criminals. That's a bias. That's a firm bias in this nation. So when we see that officer put the handcuffs on somebody, we think that that person is guilty as charged. It doesn't matter if it's a six-year-old black girl in the back of a, a squat car where the cuffs can't even fit on her wrist. But they think it's appropriate to put them on her. It doesn't matter if there's a young boy in the school and um, he's having a, a, a moment and they show up at the school. And that's what you call a moment, not this fool that just killed these um, Asian women. That's what you call having a bad day. When a child is at school having a bad day, that's a bad day. When right. a child is having a temper tantrum, not when a grown man take and pick up uh, uh, weapons and go out and, and run through a community and kill women of a particular race and nationality. No one's mouth should be fixed to say that was a bad day. That was a that was a homicidal day that too many white Americans have in this country. Okay, that's what that was. That was a homicidal day that too many white Americans have, whether it's the children going up to school in trench coats and killing other children, or some fool taken with a 45 running around parks and killing people in parks uh, um, that's taken and having a moment as, 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 as couples, that's homicidal. That's not a, a, a bad day, okay? And I'm trying to take and reserve my language for something else in another moment and not on camera, but that's not a bad day, okay? I was, <laughs> I was talking about those that are in our prisons. Uh, um, that's there as a way of guilty plea. We have an affirmed bias that when these officers arrest people, that they are automatically guilty. But where we acquire that, there's an invisible bias that was built into there. These men and women came from an institution that started off to catching slaves. Okay? So anytime they picked up a slave, they were wrong. Okay? because they were somebody else's property and it was right for the officers to apprehend them and to bring them back to their rightful owners. And if they chose to take the liberty and beat their butt while they had them in their custody, that was accepted too. This is an invisible confirmed bias that's unbroken in this nation, okay? It don't take just a psychiatrist or psychologist to take and feel these dots or a behavioral scientist. It doesn't take that. Our common sense will take it and connect the dots if we quit taking and denying the reality. Donald Trump ain't the only one in America that denies reality. He's a, he's a symptom of the rest of white America. Donald Trump is a, a symptom of the rest of white America. In other places, in other decent places in the world, like in Europe, like in, in, in Germany, in former Hitler Germany, when you deny Hitler, when you deny history that is traumatic to a people, they prosecute you for it. 
because they won't allow you to take and to re-victimize people. They won't allow you to continue with the trauma. They recognize that this society has went through a trauma and we won't revisit it again. And so they stop it. And thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Let me just let me catch my breath a little bit. Um, that was a word. That was amazing. Um, no, I was gonna say, um, you know, police are the biggest. They're like the biggest advocates for confirmation bias. Yes. You know, in the wrong hands because we all have it. Everybody has it you know, tendency to uh, to go towards certain information over the others because how he's raised, et cetera. But in the wrong hands, that is absolutely dangerous, um, as we can see all throughout this country. And police, when they do it, is cognitive dissonance. It's absolutely cognitive dissonance because, you know, they find any and everything to say that they're the answer to the problems that exist in the world when they are the problem. Um, they're just the answer. Um, they find every way to show that and they you can put every piece of evidence up against them and they're still saying the same thing. They find ways to adopt what you're saying but do it within their police department. Right. Um, so they're just reinforcing that they're the answer. They also do this um, when they want to say how great they are and say that, oh, you know, black people, minorities love us. They find, they always find the one black person that thinks they're great or the one black person that will take a picture with them or black officers to um, show as, um, you know, to put, on, to put on an event flyer or to put on anything to the public to say how great they are. How often do you see other minorities in those pictures? as like a way of, oh, we're, we're great. It's always a black person. Right. Every single time. Right. One black, I was going to, I don't mean to, but no, you said it. Or the one black doctor who's going to speak on George Ford, um, Floyd, um, against George Floyd, actually, and for the police in the trial. But go ahead. <laughs> no, yeah, no. <laughs> No, yes, I agree. Um, <laughs> just to speak to the narrative of, oh, we are the answer. There's nothing wrong with us. When 99%, 99.9% of the rest of the world is saying that, no, you're the problem. Mm -hmm. It's like, like it's, it's just hard to, like I understand it, but it's hard to grapple with. Right. Because there's just so much evidence saying that they aren't the answer, saying there's all these alternatives and we need to work towards this, that other countries doing better things and they still stick with the same thing every single time. And at this point, it's just disrespectful. Right. So, Beth, um, I called on you to piggyback on Allie because of the work you guys are doing. How does that show up in your work? Oh. <laughs> it shows up. It shows up. I mean, like, and I, to kind of build off of what Allie was saying, like, so police departments want us to believe that the officers who do 
violent things in communities or the officers who target black people are like the bad apples or they're the exception um, or the officers who target people living with mental illness or people with mental disabilities you know that those are the the exceptions but the reality is that is very much reflective of what we train officers to do and what we ask officers to do the officer who attacks a person who's having a mental health crisis is doing exactly what they've been trained to do because what they've been trained is if they see someone as not complying, they perceive that as a potential threat of harm. And they respond to that potential threat of harm by trying to bring that person under control through use, through escalating the use of force. So, you know, to, to build off of what Ali is saying is they, they literally cannot be the solution to mental health crises because they've been trained to respond to mental health crises violently. They cannot be the solution to, to violence in our communities because they've been respond to res they've been trained to respond violently. So, and we see, we see in the data, we see it showing up in a couple of different ways. Um, we see in our calls to service data, we saw that police officers are being called into mental health and physical health crises. We see that about a quarter of the time, Dearborn police are being called into a physical or mental health crisis situation. A quarter of the time. That's not their job. That, that There's no reason for a police officer to be brought into those situations. Mm -hmm. We see it in citations data. We see, um, we see people we see black people really overrepresented in both citations and arrests for reasons of disobeyed an officer, which is kind of a nebulous thing or resisted arrest, which again is based off of the officer's perception of someone's behaviors. And if the officer is trained to perceive this person's behaviors as, um, as defiant, even if they're not, even if that's not what the person is doing, the officer will still cite or arrest that person accordingly. On the flip side of that, we see white women totally underrepresented. So white women make up a, a little less than half of Dearborn's population. White, I should say white classified women. White classified women make up a little less than, than half of Dearborn's population but we're less than 10% of arrests because there's this confirmation bias. There's this bias that white women are innocent. White women are, are um, you know, we couldn't possibly be, be doing something illegal. So like, you know, it's, it's two sides of the coin, right? On, on the one side, there's this bias of seeing black people as inherently more criminal. And on the other side, there's this bias of seeing white people as more innocent. Mm -hmm. Tia, love it, Tia. Yeah, you know, um, it's amazing because the sad thing, which is why I'm so glad that we have this panel, is that you have to educate the community because um, the sad to say that much of a lot of bias does exist within people of color and within their own communities. They've already, you know, through the studies have have indicated that people already believe at very early ages, children at early ages, that they're guilty. They believe they're guilty. And so this is the trauma that has 
permeated our community is that young people by the age of seven already believe because of, of their environment, because of what they've seen on TV, because of what they see in their community, that they are guilty already before anything happens. They're guilty. And, and the, the other thing is that with confirmation biases, it is, you know, people are making decisions according to their beliefs. And they believe that their belief is right. And unless we do a campaign of demonstrating and showing that bias, extreme biases, I'm not saying when you want to eat M&Ms and you prefer the red over the yellow, that's your preference. I'm talking extreme bias where you have a hatred for a person and you can go and kill somebody. At some point, the mindset of that person, the mindset of people with extreme biases has got to be insane. And until we say that these people are insane, there needs to be a diagnosis in DSM for them. Because there is no reason for us to continue to have this in the community. So everything is lining up to a person's perception, whether it's the police officer, whether it's the judge, whether it's the jury. It's all according to their perception. And certain lawyers will try to make sure that everything, all the evidence lines up with what they believe anyway to be true. Mm -hmm. Um, and and people need to know that. Right. So, Reverend Tia, when you said, um, going back to what you said about seven-year-olds, what grade is that? Second grade. Yeah, okay. Because I mm -hmm. read um, some data that says, um, based off of third graders' test scores, that's how they build um, prisons and jails. They do. That's the, that's the prison. That's the pipeline from preschool to prison. And, and, and I did, um, I went into the school systems to see, um, and you can tell the difference when you enter into urban, a lot of urban schools, I'm not going to say all of them, but you go into some of the classrooms, you go into the school. I went into a school and they locked the door behind me and there was another door that was chained. The walls were gray. There wasn't anything inviting children to education. And when I walked in the classroom, it did not have an invite, an, any invitation whatsoever towards education. It, there was the sense already when I walked in that it was a prison. And, and, I, and, you know, and that's the sad thing. <laughs> now, if you go into a more... Uh, affluent neighborhood with schools and you go into that classroom and you go into that school building, the doors aren't locked. There's no chains on the doors. Everything is lively. It's peachy, peachy, all the beautiful things in the hallway, inviting children to education, mm -hmm. you know, and with COVID now we got to rethink that. Rethink education. I'm writing a letter today because again, social justice, 
my nephew. Everybody can't learn online. Everybody can't sit for hours. You know, and we are losing out of a classroom of 22 children, only five children have been engaged. Um, well, so the biases, the biases starts as soon as elementary school, um, first grade, second grade, third grade. This is what people are basing the criminal um, justice um, system based off of who's going to be a recipient to the prisons. Um, Allie, you look like you had something. Yeah. Um... <clears throat> I'm just thinking about those the schools, uh, the comment about the schools um, and how COVID is affecting schools and affecting students. It's like there was already a system, a biased system. So, you know, people can have confirmation bias. The system has confirmation bias. And that's just, this system believes that the way in which we learn is good for everybody, regardless of whether or not you're disabled or not. It's just it fits you. And that is completely false. Um, the system has the bias that those that are mentally disabled should be incarcerated um, and along with black people. So, and that's very clear. I see that when I think about how the schools are doing things and, and things being online, it's just one way. It's not accessible for everybody. Mm -hmm. The definition of accessible is not just, it's not just this one size fits all thing. Um, and I see that, you know, with therapy all the time and, and it just seems really unfair. Um, you know, equity is, is what's needed. Right. Fair conditions for everyone. We don't start off at the same line. Mm -hmm. And these biases, they exist in, in multiple areas um, of the system, not just criminal justice. Yeah. Um, but also in the school system, policing can happen in many forms. And that can be, you know, an education system. Uh, it can be in the mental health, in mental health institutions, uh, you know, policing reinvents itself. And these biases reinvent themselves in other forms for the same thing. Right. I just want to see us work our way out of that. Right. And COVID. And the reason why we're bringing so much attention to the biases because COVID kind of opened our eyes to it when the schools shut down. They're opening up our biases to education, people getting sick, dying. It opened up our, our eyes to the biases in the, the medical field. You know, um, um, Michigan Department of Corrections, um, people dying, the way they're treating COVID inside. So it opened us eyes up to seeing how they're treated inside the prison systems. So when we're talking about these biases, we can't, COVID brought it to our attention and we can't run away from it. And we have to really deal with it because so many of our loved ones are going to prison or being wrongfully arrested or taking plea deals based off of biases. Attorney Hugo Matt. Well, Truer words never spoken, you know, and 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 the thing of it is, I'm I'm just gonna keep on relating to my own experiences in life, you know, and and as a practitioner. There is nothing you can do to stop a prosecutor's authorization pen. All right. 
because that is a trust that has been placed in that individual by the people, you know, in, in, in a true exercise of democracy. But the, the, the problem is, the problem is that to charge somebody, it takes such little evidence, such little evidence to get that person up into circuit court. And I just want to explain how, how this works. I'm sure all of you know this already. You know, when a person has a, 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 a probable cause examination, the standard of proof is so low. You talk about confirmation bias. I talked about the jury with confirmation bias. The next group right behind a jury with confirmation bias is a person who wears a black robe is called a judge, <laughs> okay? A district court judge that conducts a probable cause hearing because the standard of proof is so low that, uh, uh, you know, Allie Hughes, somebody points a finger at Allie Hughes and says she committed a crime, you know? And guess what? Allie Hughes is gonna get bound over. It doesn't matter that Allie Hughes was in Kansas when that crime was committed in, in Dearborn. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make a difference. Because if Allie Hughes stands up and said, Judge, this is ridiculous. I got my ticket here. I got a video of my people in Kansas where I was visiting them. I got a citation from the governor. Here it is at the exact same time that uh, they say this bank was robbed. Say, Ms. Hughes, we're not here for your trial. Tell that to the jury in, um, in Wayne County Circuit Court. I'm going to bind you over. See, because the, the, the believe, you know, we have an old saying, they'll bind over a ham sandwich. Okay, a ham sandwich can sit there at that table and, you know, the ham sandwich is guilty. Well, we got to bind it over. So confirmation bias really starts at the first level of the criminal justice system, because if judges really stood up and said, you know what, I've got some real question, even if there's probable cause, I've got some real question. I'm not going to keep uh, co-signing and stamping what a police officer says or even a victim says who comes in here, you know, I want a little more information. I want a little more investigation done. I guarantee you, if judges started setting that example, uh, and I, I can speak for Washtenaw County, you'd have prosecutors and police thinking, okay, let's rethink this because Judge Hughes or Judge Sanders or, you know, or Judge Littlejohn is not going for the okie doke anymore, okay? You know, we're gonna have to come, if not the A game, at least the B game, damn. At least, excuse me, at least come with the B game. Don't come with the D game and E game and still win? You still win? So, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So, so anyway, anyway, all I'm trying to say is that's where we gotta really start it with these juries and these judges to uphold the law and say, come on judge, probable cause means more than just them coming in and telling you something and you passing the case along. You know, you, you mentioned something that kind of resonated with me. Um, so you, you were talking about how um, how it starts from, it starts at like these very basic levels, these beginning levels. And when we can start to dehumanize people who go in front of these judges, or when we can start to dehumanize people who are um, being sucked into the system is really like, the beginning of forming these biases. And I'm I'm thinking about the word criminal and how like once you slap the word criminal onto someone, suddenly they're um, suddenly they're less than human. 
Um, and I'm thinking about a quote from a Dearborn police officer. Um, and this was after, after a gang of officers brutalized um, a, a mentally disabled man who was riding his bike home at night. And when they were asked, why did you do that? He responded, it's common for criminals to ride a bike. And now like you can be tempted to hear that as like, you know, people ride their bikes, I guess, to like do crimes. But the reality is what what's probably happening there is someone who's had previous interactions with the criminal legal system is more likely to have their driving privileges taken away. So they they have this record that's causing them to use a bike to to get around. And so the police officer was able to convince the judge that this choice to brutalize this man was because he had reasonable suspicion of this man was a criminal because he was a man of color riding a bike. And just by the fact of being labeled a criminal, it was like his his suffering didn't matter. Mm -hmm. That it was, you know, we had to protect our community from from this potential danger. It was a guy riding a bike. Right. So when behavior uh, criminalized, it also leads to a wrongful detainment, a wrongful arrest. Edward? That, that went back to what I was saying about this unbroken chain between uh, police's catching runaway slaves. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, um, you know, we still criminalize normal behavior if it's related to Black Americans. Then the behavior is criminal. It doesn't matter whether you ride in the bike or you're driving white Black, whether in Dearborn or anywhere else. You know, and it's a shame. It's a shame. Um, uh, um, the police union is probably, not probably, it's certainly the most um, irresponsible union in America. It, it is um, other unions take and stand up and ask and demand uh, for what they what they um, workers need, for what fellow union members need. This union for the police, they can step out on the limb and argue. I don't care what it is, you know. I don't care how gracious the uh, um, the fellow officers' behavior is, and it's like. They take all the good officers in their union and throw them under the bus with, with one bad apple. They would take and throw a million decent people under the bus with that one bad apple. You don't find no other union doing that. And unions are very, very, you know, are, are, are protective of their, their union members. And as it was mentioned here, you know, some of the things that are being required that officers perform, they shouldn't be required to perform. They shouldn't be asked to perform some of those things. They're having the training for them. One of the things that I learned, you never do a job if you don't have the tools to do it. You know, I'm not going out to shovel your snow if I didn't bring a shovel and you ain't got one at your place. I'm not going to rake your grass if I don't have the rake and you don't have one at your house. It's that simple. I'm not gonna wash your dishes if you don't have a sink. If you don't have, if you don't have running water, if you don't have dish detergent, your dishes ain't gonna get clean. 
And this is what we are doing with officers. I know I'm making it very elementary, but that's how we need to keep it. The judge should have looked at that guy. You know, millions of Americans ride bikes. We have a biking industry. You know, even people that take a vacation takes and then rent bikes to ride bikes, you know. So I will be damned. I was out of the law before I became a, a, a delinquent. I was committing laws and I didn't realize that. I thought when mama brought me that bike for Christmas, she did a darn good investment. I didn't know I became a criminal taking and doing that. But in any case, um, what I propose other than the, the officers taking getting serious, the good officers getting serious about the type of representation that they may want from their union, they have to now start, officers need to take and start taking and demanding better representation. They need to uh, um, say to their union that we don't want you out there for any and everything. We want you to maintain our good honor and dignity. We want you to maintain the good relationship that we have with the communities in which we have to work in. They have to stand up and say that, just like when we say to white people, it's not an issue of black people in terms of racism. It isn't something that black people need to do in order for you to get over your darn racism. It's what you need to do. And police need to say the same damn thing. They need to stand their ass up and talk to their union and say that, hey, there are some of us that just, you know, find some of these things repulsive ourselves. And, and, and we, uh, we don't want you as a union pretending to represent all of us in defending that, that garbage. They have to stand up and do that. Okay? So, yeah. like we tell white folks, they have to stand up. We have to do the same thing with officers. Yeah, they, oh, go ahead. I was going to say that if they don't stand up, then we're going to tear the house down. <laughs> All of it. And we can redo it. And we'll have better public safety. However they want to get to this solution, we're going to get to it. If the, the only thing they understand is defund the police, then defund the police. Right. You know? So, yeah. And as a former UAW uh, member and uh, labor school student, we have to understand, and, and even union members, that unions are political organizations. And with knowing that, you know, these people in the union, some of them stay in place for, you know, year after year after year because people don't um, speak up against them or, you know, um, change um, because they're so used of things going a certain way. Meanwhile, um, unions protect the workers, but we have police that we employ that's supposed to protect and serve the community. So it's going to be our job as a community to um, address these unions and hold them accountable, you know, um, and that means also holding accountable elected officials who are uh, promoted by these unions. You know, these unions that stand up and promote certain ones, and we that means we got to hold them accountable because if you're uh, accepting union endorsements, then that means you believe in what the union is doing. Exactly. So, exactly. Um, Tia? Look, I, I'm just oh amazed with what everybody is saying. I'm on board 100%. You know, I was just thinking that racism... Uh, when you when you talk about it as far as confirmed biases, it 
really demonstrates a disconnection from the individual. That's why I like, uh, you know, racism is not an African-American problem. It's not it's not any minority problem. It's it is the problem of that is reflected in what the so-called majority is. It is not a pro it's not our problem. It, it, it shows a disconnection of self-awareness. It demonstrates low self-esteem. Mm -hmm. And so quite frankly, we have leaders who are leading the country, who are leading in, in, uh, in so many service positions and they are in leadership positions and they are leading with low self-esteem. And when you lead from there, then everybody, you, you try to do anything to help promote yourself. You try to, to uh, belittle other people so you can feel good. Mm -hmm. And this is just on a primary level, but it, it's, it's, it's magnitude. It's, 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 it's bigger because we have allowed it. We have allowed it to happen year after year after year, century after century after century. And, and no one says, you're sick. You're sick. You have diseased thinking. You're right. Generational mindsets. And it's sad because children have to deal with that. I remember as a child, my mother, you know, when I was little, to me, Detroit gave me uh, what I would say a false sense of um, of importance. Because at the time, you know, I grew up when Coleman Young, of course, was the, the mayor. And, um, and so as long as I stayed in Detroit, I felt like I was okay. Because at the time, uh, if you lived in the city, if you worked in the city, you had to live in the city. You, and, and that was the law. Um, and so it gave me a, a, a sense of like, I could just do anything. And, and my mother forced me, would force me, come on, we're gonna go shop in, in Birmingham. And I would become irate. Why? I don't want to shop in Birmingham because every time we go to Birmingham, it's going to be a fight with you and the person at the table who doesn't see you in line. And it was always you don't see my black self standing here. And they always would serve somebody else before her. And I was thinking, well, why? Why do we even come here? Why do we even come here? And sad to say, a lot of people are like, I don't want to go. I'm afraid. I don't want to go outside of my comfort zone because it, 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 I'm going to get hurt out there. And so, quite frankly, a lot of African-Americans try to change their life to fit the majority. And they think. If I can just pass with them, no one will see me and I'm going to be all right. And, and it never happens like that. It never happens like that. Right. 
You're right. Because like Beth, you're, you know, the work that you're doing, uh, I used to work um, at Dearborn a long time, time times, long, long times ago. And um, I remember, you know, leaving Dearborn and driving down the service drive to get on the, you know, Southfield Freeway. And you basically had to be 10 and 2, you know, and straight up. And, you know, you have to mm-hmm. do all of this stuff just so you can just make it to the freeway. Mm-hmm. And yeah. people don't think that that those biases that's that's a trauma that mm-hmm. you, to, you know every time you see that you gotta you know. So um, thank you everyone. We we always go by our time. I'm just gonna take the time off because <laughs> 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 you know these conversations is so necessary because we um, it allows people to think. And, you know, um, it also allows us to do our own work. You know, we can come on here every Friday and have these discussions, but we also want people to do their own work so you can know for yourself. You know, we're just um, giving out information, but it's best that everybody make an investment into understanding, you know, these biases and how these things happen because just because it's not happening to you right now, it doesn't matter. It may happen to you or somebody you love. It happened to me. It happened to my son. He was walking down the street and the biases then built black braids. He's the, you know, he's the perpetrator. So, and that can happen to anybody at any time. So we, you know, we're here just to motivate everybody to do their work. Um, So as we end this, I'm going to start with um, Edward. (laughs) What would you like to leave us with? Well, I want you guys to remember this. The next time you hear a prosecutor uh, make reference to the fact that they gave a child an opportunity to plead guilty to a lesser crime after they charged the child with first-degree murder. You, and you didn't heard it before. You didn't heard some of these prosecutors here in this state and, and across the nation. They said we gave him or her a, cha- a, a opportunity to plead guilty to a lesser charge, but they insist on doing the trial. Now, this is a, a, a confirmed bias. The bias is that they are used to using the plea bargain system with adults, and they assume that the child would take a response to the same plea bargain uh, uh, game as a child would. And a child don't because a child thinks differently. I want to go home, okay? The child want to go home, not um, 10 years. You could have told the child, you got, we give you 10 years. The child is still going to say no. And this is why the largest number of people in this country who were arrested for, for first degree murder, the largest group, recognizable group, that was charged with first-degree murder that insisted on a jury trial was actually children. Children is the only identifiable group in this country that demand a right to a jury when they're charged with first-degree murder. Adults were street, and they would say, hey, 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 okay, I take the plea bargain to second degree. Okay, if they can't get a, a manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter, they're going to get out from up under that first degree. But most of the children say, no, I want a jury. 
and they sit there in front of a jury, sometimes with their feet not even being able to touch the floor in the courtroom from the chair they sit in, and they sit there supposedly with their members of their peers. So I want to leave that with you the next time you hear one of these dumb prosecutors make that assertion that we gave this person an opportunity or chance, and just imagine how dumb that person is that you took and elected and put in office. And please, don't ever do that again when you go to the polls. Don't ever do something that irresponsible that this person thinks that your child is a miniature adult. Thank you. Thank you. Allie? Yes, um, so a few things. Wanted to first plug another event that is coming up um, that will be really powerful. Um, it's on March 23rd at 6 p.m. Um, it's a joint uh, partnership event, um, Independent Lands, PBS, uh, Michigan Liberation. It's an eight-part series that will look at a Philadelphia district attorney and his path to uh, changing the criminal justice system to things that are more restorative and the pushback he got. Following that, it will be a panel. Um, and the panel would include activists from Michigan Liberation, as well as uh, prosecutors in Michigan trying to change things. And some of those um, include a prosecutor for Ingrid County, as well as Victoria Burton, Harris, and Eli Silas, um, and more. Um, but that's gonna definitely be powerful and I'll put that in the chat. Um, so yeah, definitely check that out. Um, and then also, um, I guess like, I just really want people to continue challenging local government specifically. Continue researching and looking into where you live, the surrounding areas, different bills and just different things that are being passed. Um, because most often they're being passed to stay there long-term. It's never short-term, it's gonna continue to affect you. And these things have to be undone. We don't need any more out of top of the current injustices. So I just really want to emphasize that we need to continue um, to read and research, expand our mind, and, and don't confine your mind to what you know and what and, and who you who you usually know. It's time to really think outside of the box mm -hmm. um, to be one step ahead of the system because they're always thinking about the next thing. We think about abolish the police and they're thinking about how they can still enforce the police in our life, even with it abolished. Uh, so we have to think at the same speed. Um, thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Beth, for joining us. Um, anytime you want to join in on our panel, you are welcome. <laughs> um, what would you like to leave us with? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. This was such an illuminating conversation for me. I was probably taking more notes than I was <laughs> than I was speaking. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I just want us to I guess I, I want to leave us with the the reflection that you know we can't we can't punish our way to to connected communities, and we can't arrest our way to safety. You know the the reality is that we have to invest our way to connection, to community, to safety. We have to invest in each other. Um, and I I did want to um, just give a, a quote from Angela Davis: Prisons do not disappear social problems. They disappear human beings. We can't rely on systems of incarceration to keep us safe. We need to rely on one another. Mm -hmm. And 
like it starts with imagining and then from there we got to start building it. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be building with each of you. Yes, I'm thrilled to be building with you. I'll plug tomorrow's event as Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, I'm with Accountability for Dearborn. We've got our fourth data town hall. We're focusing on arrests, the data of arrests. The, the, oh, hi, my sister's here. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about the data that show um, racial disparities and arrests. Um, mm -hmm. We're also talking, uh, we're also bringing in partners to um, give context to those disparities and those realities and, and how it's just this part of this longer story, this unbroken chain of events um, okay. that have consistently resulted in black oppression. And we have to reckon with that if we're going to achieve black liberation. So join us tomorrow, 6 p.m. It's gonna be, um, there's a, a Zoom link um, that you can sign up for, or mm -hmm. you can check out Facebook Live. So, or if you're busy tomorrow night, because I know it's gonna be a nice day, um, so you might not wanna be inside, we're gonna record it and you can access the recording. Awesome. And I'm gonna post the um, flyer uh, on the Justice for Gerard movement page and also on my personal page. Reverend Tia, what would you yes. us with? <laughs> I, I just want to urge everyone, you know, I was looking at the chat and I think it was Brenda who said, uh, she said, don't forget it's a money game. Mm -hmm. And, and it is important for us to remember that we can use money, but love people. We can use money all day long, but love people. And it is important for our communities not to get so wrapped up and entangled in the money that you don't even know who you are. You lose sight of yourself. And the only way anybody can take your mind and, and come into a community to continue to do what they do in the community is when a community lacks self-knowledge mm -hmm. and empowerment. And so at the same time where we're giving information, we are empowering transformation in our communities and in the individuals and in families and of course in our leaders. Thank you so much. Thank you, Reverend Tia. I just, oh, go ahead. Really quick, no, that just made me think of something. I just really want to jump in and say, <laughs> um, you know, when you die, you can't take money with you. Money can be taken away from you in life at any moment. But, you know, what you learn and your knowledge, that's with you forever. Right. No one can take that from you. And I think that's what's why I'm so prone to education. Um, this world tries to take so many things from you, and that is the one thing you can use to fight back, and nobody can take that from you. Uh, so I really appreciate that, those uh, comments here. Absolutely. Um, last but not least, Attorney Hugo Matt. Well, it's like some of the folks were with a spy cam in my den because it's a lot of things I was gonna say. But you know, like minds think think similarly and I and I co-sign so many things, you know, especially you, Reverend T. I'm I'm sort of wondering, you know, Holy Spirit got your eyes and you're on me. You know, so, 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 so. 
So I, I really want to say this. For me, it's really very fundamental. You know, we saw in Georgia how people got together and said, we can turn this election. We can do it. We can do it. And you talk about confirmation bias. Anytime we have a community, and I'm, and I'm talking about my community, I'm talking about black community, where we refuse to believe that we can do it, we have confirmed the racism and discrimination, the label that has been put on us. We yeah. celebrate it. Yeah. We celebrate it. You know, and I had many, many arguments, particularly with, with, with some of my, you know, younger younger black brothers about, man, you crazy, man. Ain't, you know, you ain't going to do nothing. You ain't changed nothing. And, you know, I mean, just rampant ignorance, rampant wholesale ignorance, and, and which is exactly what it is, ignorance. When you refuse to step out of a bucket simply because somebody tells you that's where you belong, that, that that's genocide. That's self-genocide. That's self-hatred is, is what that is. So, you know, I guess my message and my prayer is believe that we can make the change because we can make it. We really can do it. So just encourage people in our communities to stand up and know that change can come if we go forward. Black people, stop being afraid to go for jury duty. Please, please, okay? Stop being afraid to get in there and vote. Please, please, you know, stop being afraid to go when these people are running for judges and prosecutors and and, and say, well, I don't, you know, you know, I mean, I don't want my face up in there with them people, man. I don't want nobody taking my photograph. Stop it. Stop it. They already got your photograph. Stop it. So, so what I'm saying is stand up for what you know to be true and quit confirming the wrong that's been leveled against us. Yes, thank you, uh, Attorney Hugo Matt. I just want to leave us with none of us are free until we are free. We have to work together, come together. We have we. It's up to us. We can change it. You know, we just have to focus, um, disrupt, and dismantle. It's my favorite two words. So, um, with that being said, I want to thank everyone for joining us. I want to thank the panel this week. I want to also say you can follow the Justice for Gerard movement on, uh, of course, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Join, uh, subscribe, and um, share the YouTube page. All the videos that we have done since October are on there. Also, if you haven't signed the petition for Justice for Gerard, Go to change.org slash justice for Gerard. Sign the petition, share with your friends. And we also have um, www.freegerard.com where you can go online and learn some information. There's information about how wrongful convictions happen that can happen to anyone at any time. And thank you guys and see you on next Friday for turning a moment into a movement. Love you guys. God bless. Thank you. Yes.